The demand for transplantable organs is outpacing the supply at an increasing rate. Congress has been actively involved in amending legislation to balance the needs of people seeking organs with one another and with the needs of potential organ donors. However, there are many challenging legal and ethical issues to be considered. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Robert Brown, Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation, Columbia University Medical Center, and Chief, Division of Abdominal Organ Transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Today we are discussing the legal and ethical issues surrounding organ donation. Dr. Brown, how many people in our country are awaiting organ donations? There are currently over 17,000 patients waiting for liver transplants alone, and close to 100,000 patients waiting for some type of organ transplant. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of living organ donations? Living organ donation is a history as long as transplant itself. The earliest kidney transplants had to use living donors because our immunosuppression was inadequate to do any transplant except from a carefully matched individual. Initially, identical twins, followed by six HLA-matched living donors, and eventually, with the advent of cyclosporin and more potent immunosuppressive agents, we were able to do deceased donor transplants. Thus, kidney transplantation had living donation as its backbone from its inception. For liver transplantation, the idea of doing a living donor operation took longer and initially started in children because the waiting time for small organs for babies was too long. And so the waiting list mortality for babies was very high. Initially, it was found that you could use a reduced size deceased donor graft. And once it was seen that you could use the small part of the left lobe of the liver from a deceased donor, it became only a small leap to then use that left lateral segment from a parent to a child. And that was done initially in the University of Chicago in the late 80s. However, living liver donation from adults to adults waited almost another decade and really required that same ethical principle of high waiting list mortality that we saw in the 90s until we were ready to take the larger right lobe of a living donor and put it into a recipient. So both living kidney donation and living liver donation grew out of need, but the needs were different for kidney, inadequate immunosuppression, and the fact that a living kidney donor provides a superior graft, and for liver, high waiting list mortality and long waiting times. In a patient who is on the list for a deceased liver transplantation, do you encourage the family to consider living donation? 
I present the options of living donation to all of our recipients who are listed for transplantation. I like to think of living donation and deceased donors as parallel tracks where the major difference between the two is one of timing. Living donation offers the ability to time the transplant, to optimize the recipient's condition, to try to treat hepatitis C or a liver tumor prior to transplantation, and thus provides a way to expedite transplantation. I encourage it more strongly in patients in whom waiting list mortality is expected to be enhanced. This would include older individuals who might not be able to tolerate the operation if they got critically ill. Patients with tumors that are close to the limits where we can do successful transplants, where tumor growth could make transplant too high risk or likely to fail or other conditions in which they are either going to suffer morbidity or mortality on the waiting list. There, the benefits of living donation become stronger relative to its risks. Do potential living donors ever say to you, well, I'd be willing to do this if we get to a point where my relative will die if he does not get a deceased liver transplant? That does happen with some degree of frequency, and it raises an ethical dilemma. How's that? People who are critically ill really cannot tolerate a small-sized liver, either from a living or a deceased donor. So someone who becomes critically ill really is not a candidate for a living donation. And that's why these two operations are complementary rather than competing. So fortunately, patients who are critically ill are prioritized for deceased donor organs. So what I try to tell those individuals is we can evaluate you as a potential living donor, and then we'll discuss it. What you want to do is try to predict the patients who are likely to become critically ill and unable to access a deceased donor graft and catch them with a living donor liver transplant prior to them falling off that precipice. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert Brown, associate professor of medicine and surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation at Columbia University Medical Center and chief division of abdominal organ transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Brown, what are the different types of living donations, such as paired or list donation? Most of these donations have been done in kidney transplantation rather than in liver transplantation. Paired donation, or sometimes called swaps, are done when, for example, I want to donate to my brother, but we have an incompatible blood type. Another patient on the waiting list has a living donor, and they have an incompatible blood type. But we have a compatibility when you cross. So 
my brother will donate to his cousin, and he will donate to me, if I got that swap correctly. But you can understand the principle. The one donor-recipient pair that is unmatched and another donor-recipient pair that is unmatched swap their donors. These operations are usually done simultaneously so that no one backs out, and that's what they do. When you talk about donating to the list, that's usually a case of an anonymous or good Samaritan donor who says, I want to give a kidney or a liver, I guess, to whoever needs it most. And then that organ would then be allocated according to the standard allocation algorithm to the next eligible recipient. Now, Congress has offered a number of incentives to increase the donor pool, such as job security and tax credit acts to donors. Do you think these acts help to increase the donor pool? I think that the Family Medical Leave Act, which allowed time off from work to serve as a living donor, was an important step. Currently, that's only guaranteed to government employees, but many companies have followed suit, and I think that is an important step. Though I think we could certainly go further as a country. One thing that has been proposed has been to offer insurance, like Medicare, to anyone who served as a living donor. I think we have to separate financial incentives or the elimination of financial barriers to serving as a living donor from the concept of paid donation. I'm very much in favor of removal of financial barriers and perhaps some small, modest incentives that would improve the health of donors. But I think that paid donation gets into a much more ethically sticky area. Well, let's talk about that. The National Organ Transplant Act of 1984 prohibited donors from receiving any monetary considerations for their organs beyond the expenses related to the procedure. Do you think people should be able to receive any compensation at all monetarily for their organs? I don't think that either families of deceased donors or living donors should obtain substantial valuable consideration, which is actually the wording that NOTA or the Organ Transplantation Act used for their organs. I do think that we can remove some of the financial barriers that people face. For example, a study of living liver donors estimated that the out-of-pocket expenses for a living donor were over $3,000. Now, it is not paying a donor to compensate them for those losses, to reimburse them, in essence, not to mention time lost from work and other things. And those are allowable under NOTA. The next step would be to, to provide modest financial incentives. One example would be paying funeral costs for deceased donor transplants, providing health insurance for living donors provided paid time from work, off from work for living donors. I think all of those are acceptable. But I think the basic principle has to be that the donor benefits and that the donor benefits aren't paid for by the recipient. Because if the donor benefits are paid for by the recipient, this will be a policy that only helps the wealthy. If the policy applies across all recipients 
and the organs, if they're done from an anonymous donor, go to the next patient on the list. This is a situation in which everyone benefits. Now, will there be a disproportionate number of economically disadvantaged people who donate if we had a system of paid donation? Yes, probably. But that doesn't differ from other things that we do in our society. We allow people to be paid to go serve in the Army, to put themselves at risk, to be policemen, to be firemen, and to do things that have even less benefit, like box professionally. I want to thank Dr. Robert Brown, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the legal and ethical issues surrounding organ donation. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.